We open the scriptures to John chapter 19 once more. Read the first part of this chapter along with Lord's Day 15. Now being up to Lord's Day 16, we finish the chapter. We'll pick up our reading at verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. John 19, beginning at verse 16. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture. Did they cast lots? These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. 
a bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture, Seth, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. The basis of this chapter and the entire word of God, we consider Lord's Day 16. The five questions and answers, beginning with question 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because, with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him so that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved, in the Lord, Lord's Day 16 brings us to a subject which is at the same time most awful and also most wonderful the death of the Son of God, and the climax of his substitutionary atoning sufferings for his elect people. The Catechism has been explaining to us the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith by leading us one by one through the articles of the Apostolic Creed. And in this portion of the Apostles' Creed, we are going through the different stages of Jesus' state of humiliation. The legal state, 
that our Savior entered into at the incarnation in which he assumed upon himself our guilt, paid for our sins in order to merit for us all the blessings of salvation. That state of humiliation began with his incarnation, the virgin conception and birth. That state of humiliation continued through his lifelong sufferings that Lord's Day 15 explained to us. And now we come to the last stages of his state of humiliation, which are compressed into the last days of Jesus' life, especially Good Friday, when, as the Creed says, Jesus died. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And in these last stages of his state of humiliation, Jesus Christ, the conquering mediator of the covenant, finished the work the Father gave him to perform. Salvation accomplished. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Lord's Day 15 began the catechism's treatment of Jesus' death, focusing especially on the meaning of his crucifixion, highlighting for us that there is significance in the fact that our Savior died by crucifixion and not by some other form of death, namely that crucifixion was an accursed form of death, which shows us that Jesus became the curse for us that we might never be accursed. That is, he bore the curse of God that the blessing of God may everlastingly abide upon us. And now continuing with that consideration of Jesus' death, Lord's Day 16 focuses on the significance of Jesus' death and why Jesus had to die. Why he had to be buried. And why he had to descend into hell to save us from our sins. And so it is with solemn reverence, but also great thanksgiving and joy that we consider the second half of the fourth article of the Apostles' Creed. Dead and buried, he descended into hell. There are three parts to that portion of the fourth article, and those three parts make up our three points. Dead, buried, descended into hell. The main concern of the opening question of Lord's Day 16, question 40, is why it was necessary for Jesus to die. But before we get into the Catechism's answer of that question, why was it necessary, let's first look at John 19, which is one of the Bible's inspired accounts of the death of Christ, and look at some of the facts, some of the history of Christ's death as it is brought out here. Question 40 speaks about how Christ humbled himself even unto death. And there, question 40 is borrowing language from Philippians 2 verse 8. Even unto death. And that emphasizes that death, Jesus' death on the cross, is the lowest part of his humiliation or the climax of his sufferings. He humbled himself even unto death. John 19 emphasizes that, which is a striking thing because the Gospel of John, as one of its unique characteristics, emphasizes the glory of Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God. And here we see the Son of God humbled to the lowest on Golgotha, 
to save his people and raise them up to the heights of heaven. Jesus was led from Gabbatha to Golgotha. That's where Lord's Day 15 ended. Remember at Gabbatha, Pilate's judgment hall. That Roman judge delivered our Lord and Savior over to be crucified, though he knew Jesus was innocent and though he publicly declared Jesus innocent, still his official sentence was worthy of death. And so the custodian of proud Roman justice caved to the pressure of the railing Jewish multitude, which in the end said, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. And Pilate, the shrewd politician, gave in. And thus, man's justice bent. But God's justice never bends. And the fullness of the holy fury of the holy God would be executed upon the Christ atop Golgotha. As John 19 records, Pilate assigns a group of soldiers to carry out the grisly task of execution. There were two others that were assigned for execution that day, two criminals. And so these two, along with Jesus, are laden with the instrument of their execution, their crosses, paraded through the city of Jerusalem, out the gate to that hill of the skull, which was nigh unto the city. And there, Jesus was crucified. There, Jesus, the Son of God, yields himself into the hands of sinners. His life is not taken from him, for he alone has power to lay it down. Here he lays it down, willingly, upon that accursed tree. He humbles himself even unto death. Golgotha, deepest humiliation. More so than Jesus' lowly birth, where the Son of God united to Himself our lowly human nature. More so even than the lifelong sufferings that He endured. Here, the immortal God, the immortal God, the Son, in our flesh, dies. Greatest humiliation. The perfect one gives himself into the hands of sinners to be crucified and slain. Deepest humiliation and suffering. The innocent one here upon the hill of the skull shoulders the curse that he does not deserve. Shoulders the wrath of God for the sins of others. He humbles himself even unto the death of the cross. Now an interesting feature of John's account of the death of Christ here in John 19 is that John highlights a number of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled at Golgotha. Verse 18, for example, it is noted that Jesus is crucified between two criminals. And this is one way in which Isaiah 53 verse 12 is fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. 
Verses 23 and 24 of John 19, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' raiment. And this is part of Jesus' humiliation as he is subject to this public execution. He is shamed as he is uncovered, as his clothes even are taken from him and treated as spoils by his executioners. Part of their reward for their grisly task in the execution was the soldiers got to keep the valuables of the men who were executed. And so the soldiers divide the clothes of Jesus Christ among them, unwittingly fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Psalm 22, 17 and 18, where the psalmist said, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. The word of God being fulfilled. Again showing us that all of the events transpiring atop Golgotha are no coincidence. But are all according to the sovereign plan of God and are the unfolding of his counsel for the redemption of his people. Verses 28 and 29 of John 19. Another scripture fulfilled. When Jesus, after he had suffered through the three hours of darkness upon the cross, which John does not record because the other gospel accounts cover it, Jesus cries, I thirst, and he is given vinegar to drink. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 69 verse 21, which says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus cried, I thirst, no doubt, because his throat was parched after hours hanging upon the cross in the hot sun of Palestine. But there's a deeper meaning there. He thirsted. He thirsted spiritually because as the suffering servant of Jehovah, he was suffering from that fiery wrath of God against the sins that he bore. I thirst. I thirst. Till at last, in verse 30, Jesus says, It is finished. It is finished. The scriptures have been fulfilled. All of the work that God gave him to perform in the state of humiliation has been accomplished. The wrath against the sins of his people, which was poured out upon him, he has now borne to the uttermost and sustained. It is finished. And then as verse 30 goes on to say, Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That means, children, that he died. His spirit was separated from his body. The spirit, the soul of Jesus Christ went at that moment to heaven. He died. The Son of God died. In a certain sense, he died just like We die. Life left his body. His soul was torn asunder from his body. He died. And yet, he died like no other. For he died as the sacrifice for the sins of others. The elect people God gave to him before the foundation of the world. And thus his death like his sufferings, 
is entirely, entirely unique. Those are some of the facts of Jesus' death that John 19 lays out for us. But now we can come back to that question that the catechism here is especially focusing on. Why was it necessary? Did Jesus have to die? He humbled himself. Lord's Day 15 showed us how deeply Jesus humbled himself. Did he have to humble himself even unto death in order to save his people from their sins? Couldn't a lifelong suffering have paid for the sins of his people? Catechism based on the scriptures says no. Jesus had to die. Why? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Think of the events of Thursday of the Passion Week when Jesus is in Gethsemane. And as the prospect of the cross looms before his mind, three times Jesus bends the knee and prays, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. Nonetheless, not what I will, but what thou dost will. And the will of God is that the Son take the cup. There was no other way. And the reason is that the wages of sin is death. We're familiar with that phrase from Romans 6 verse 23. But a very important phrase for understanding why Jesus had to die. Sin merits. It merits death. Every sin. No matter how small it might be in human estimation, every sin being an offense against the Most High Majesty of God, who is worthy of our perfect and wholehearted devotion, body, mind, soul, all of who we are, any sin makes the sinner worthy of death. And thus that justice and truth of God, spoken about in the catechism, demands that the sinner die. The sinner must die for his sin, and he must die all that death is. Death is not just the dissolution of the body, but death is the punishment of the whole person eternally for that sin. That's eternal death, that's what hell is. Sin merits death. Though Pilate could throw justice to the wind and condemn the innocent, the just God cannot throw his justice justice to the wind and acquit the guilty. Sin which merits death must be punished with death. God said that in the beginning, when he spoke to our first parents, giving his law in that commandment of life, when he said concerning the tree, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
And God is a God of truth. He keeps His word. And that means He must keep the word of His judgment. He can't go back on that word. The day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. The day that thou sinnest, thou must die. The truth and justice of God demands, therefore, that the sinner die unless another who is qualified to take his place die in his stead. And that's why the Catechism says satisfaction, that is payment for sin, could be made no otherwise than by the death of of the Son of God. Because Jesus Christ, as we have seen in previous Lord's Days, is the only one who is qualified to stand in our place, to take the penalty of our sin for us. The Savior, in order to save, had to die. Satisfaction for sin could be made no otherwise. That's the teaching of question and answer 40. Now, think about that personally. You would perish if it were not for the death of the Son of God. And there is no other way for you to be saved than by the death of the Son of God in our flesh. Ponder for a moment how precarious our situation is as sinners. How impossible it is from every human point of view for you to be saved. You and I are sinners, and there is nothing that we can do to pay back that infinite debt of our sins. There is nothing we can do to make satisfaction for our sins. An eternity spent in hell cannot make satisfaction. We, as sinners, would perish everlastingly under the righteous word of God's judgment. Sinner, thou shalt surely die. Yet, This righteous God of inflexible justice is the God of mercy and grace and boundless love. And in his infinite wisdom and in his eternal counsel, he ordained a way of salvation for sinners. A way we can never get ourselves down. A way of salvation that we contribute nothing to, but a way of salvation that is accomplished. By the Son of God, who He gives to be the propitiation for our sins. Most wonderful. God gives His only begotten Son. And without compromising His inflexible justice, without going back on His word, the word of His curse against the sinner, He has delivered you from death by giving His own Son to the death of the cross. Providing a Savior who alone is able to do the impossible. Jesus stood in your place, beloved. Willingly. And God said to him, Thou shalt surely die. And your eternal death, and the eternal death of all God's people, was compressed 
into those hours of Jesus suffering upon the cross and he bore it. And he died. Because he died for you. Because he bore the curse for you. The only word of God to you now, believing people of God, is thou shalt surely live. And the truth and justice of God now demand that. Because Jesus died to pay for your sins. And it would be unjust for God to deny you now the blessings Jesus merited by his work. As you look by faith upon the horrible reality of the cross, you see how it is also a reality most wonderful. As by faith you ponder the sufferings and the dying of the Christ, As you see the curse that should have come upon you fall upon him. Hear the words of the gospel believing people of God. Thou shalt surely live forever. Forever. Thus the cross of Christ brings to us manifold benefits. And that's what some of the next questions and answers in the catechism set before us. The benefits of Christ crucified and Oh, how great and how numerous are these benefits. Who can tally them up? They are as the stars of heaven in their number and in their glory. For the benefits of Christ are nothing less than the full forgiveness of all of our sins, reconciliation with God, restoration to his favor, acceptance with him forever, everlasting life and righteousness, an inheritance incorruptible and imperishable, And perhaps you can think of many, many more biblical descriptions of the benefits of Christ. All of which is yours, believing people of God. And you can be certain of it because Jesus said, it is finished. He accomplished it. He merited all of those benefits for you. And the justice and truth of God ensures that they will come to you for his sake. But now, Lord's Day 16 takes hold of just a couple of the prominent benefits and sets them before us. Question 40 speaks of satisfaction. And to put it very simply, that means Jesus paid it all. It's a beautiful phrase. It's a beautiful phrase we should carry with us throughout our lives. Jesus paid it all. That's what satisfaction is. God's justice and its demands has been met for you And thus, your sins are covered. But a second benefit that question and answer 43 points out is the benefit of the mortification of our sin. Notice the language in question 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? And the answer, that by virtue thereof, that is by the power of the cross... Our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see, the cross accomplished for us a whole salvation of our whole person. 
Jesus' work on the cross not only saves us from the legal consequences of sin, condemnation, guilt, but the cross is also a power by which we are liberated from our indwelling sin. Jesus' death decisively put our sinful nature to death. What that means is that his death broke the power and dominion that sin had over us. Those who were given to Christ, those whom Christ represented upon the cross as their head, Jesus' crucifixion was for them also the crucifixion of their old man. That's a hard concept to understand, but the Bible teaches it very clearly. For example, in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, which say, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is free from sin. The basic idea is that Jesus' death on the cross dealt the decisive death blow to our sinful natures. Even though we still have the old man and he's with us for the entirety of our earthly life, he's been defeated. The death blow has been dealt to him. He thrashes around in his death throes and he can do a lot of damage yet. We have to wrestle him down. But the point is, he's decisively defeated. The old man no longer reigns. The power of the cross has overcome sin in you. And thus, no believer may say, I have to sin. I cannot help but commit this sin. No. To say that is to deny the power of the cross of Christ in you. No longer, no longer shall the corrupt inclinations of the flesh reign. We are set free in Jesus Christ. And thus there is a calling. The cross has an implied calling by the power of the cross. Day by day, crucify your old nature and walk in newness of life. Now, there's one last question to address before we move on in the Apostles' Creed. And that question is, why then do Christians still have to die? That's question 42 now. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? And that's a real and important question, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. But Jesus died for us. And if Jesus died for us, why should we still have to die? Answer 42 is beautiful. And it is one that is well worth pondering because there is much comfort pressed in these few words. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. You see, when Jesus died for you, he took the sting out of your death. When Jesus died for you, he took the curse out of death. When Jesus died for you, he paid the penalty. And in doing so, in making satisfaction, he has transformed death. So that for the believer, death is no longer a curse, but is a blessing. By taking the curse out of death, he has transformed death simply into this. 
only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. For you, believing people of God, death is no longer punishment because Jesus suffered that punishment. Death is not the outpouring of God's killing wrath upon you. Jesus took it. But now, death is the means by which your sin is abolished. Death is now the means by which that old sinful nature which was dealt its death blow at the cross is finally put to rest and put in the grave. For the Christian, when you die, the only thing that you really lose is your sin. When you die, the only thing that is permanently dead is your old man. Your death has been transformed into the means by which sin is put to death and you pass into life eternal. And thus for the believer, to die in Christ ultimately is to truly live. For with our death here below, we are brought to enter into the fullness of all of those benefits earned for us by the death of the Son of God. O death, where is thy sting? Let that be the heartfelt praise and cry of each and every one of us. And when we face the reality of death, though it yet brings tears, we have that comfort. Death is defeated, and it is now only the abolishing of sin and the passageway to life eternal. But now Lord's Day 16 moves on to cover the next stage in Jesus' state of humiliation, namely his burial. And sometimes this stage of Jesus' state of humiliation gets overlooked because it's sandwiched between the two that receive more attention, his death and his descent into hell. And there's reasons for that, but we must not overlook this stage because it's important. Jesus was buried. John 19 describes some of the history of Jesus' burial. John 19, verse 31, tells us that the Jewish leaders wanted the bodies of the crucified to be taken down before the coming Sabbath day. Jesus and the two others were crucified on Good Friday. And you'll remember that in the evening, in Friday evening, the Sabbath day began for the Jews. And so the Jews were concerned that there would be a certain ceremonial defilement upon the land if the bodies were allowed to stay up on the cross overnight and into the Sabbath day. Never mind that the Sanhedrinists had conspired to kill the innocent Christ. Never mind that their hands were red with the blood of Christ. They were more concerned about ceremonial defilement. And so these leaders of the Jews go to Pilate and they ask Pilate to break the legs of the crucified. That was a somewhat common Roman practice in the day. Breaking the legs of the crucified was a way to speed up their death. And so Pilate grants the request of the Sanhedrinists and dispatches the soldiers to that next grisly task. John 19 tells us that the soldiers go to each of the criminals, breaking their legs, speeding up their death. Speeding up the descent of one of them to hell, 
and also fulfilling the word of Jesus concerning the other, that today, not tomorrow, today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. But when the soldiers come to Jesus, they see that he is already dead. And that was unusual for one to die so quickly. Usually crucifixion was an agonizing death that took a long time. And so either in a last act of cruelty or just to make sure that Jesus was dead, one of the soldiers thrusts his spear into Jesus' side. And John points out that this too is a fulfillment of the scriptures. Fulfillment of the scriptures. Not one of Jesus' bones was broken. There's a reason for that. Recall the Passover and the instructions concerning the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 verse 6 where God said, Neither shall ye break a bone thereof. Not one of the Passover lamb's bones was to be broken. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the lamb of God. And that not one of his bones was broken shows that very fact. John also brings forward the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah 12 verse 10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That was in a way fulfilled when Jesus was pierced by the spear of the soldier. Well, in God's providence, two of Jesus' quiet disciples, that is, disciples who had followed Jesus secretly because of fear of the Jews, now come out into the public eye and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. That's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These men go to Pilate and they ask for the body of Jesus. And Pilate also grants them that request. And so John 19 tells us that Nicodemus brings a large quantity of spices with which to bury Jesus. This was a last act of love and reverence for the Lord. And Joseph of Arimathea, being a wealthy man, had a tomb. A tomb that was newly hewn out of the stone, was nearby to the site of crucifixion, and a tomb in which a man had never before been laid. And so these two men bring the body of Jesus and lay it in the tomb. And he is buried. Now, question and answer 41 asks the question, why, once more? Why? Why was he also buried? And the answer that is given to us here has more to it than meets the eye, thereby to prove that he was really dead. Yes, to be sure, Jesus' burial proves that he was really and certainly dead. But that could already be seen, after all, John 19 verse 33 says that the soldiers, as they approached Jesus' cross, could perceive that he was already dead. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus ask for Jesus' body, Mark 15 points out that Pilate was surprised that Jesus would already be dead. And so he inquires of the centurion to verify that fact, and the centurion verified it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would not have buried Jesus' body unless they were sure that he was dead. There's more to that answer than meets the eye. The deeper meaning is this. Jesus' burial proves that he really died 
all of death. That is, he suffered every stage and every aspect of death. Jesus didn't die and then disappear and have his body reappear on the third day and rise again. But Jesus died like we die. And his body went into the grave like our bodies go into the grave. The grave is the place of the body's complete humiliation. The grave is the place where the curse finishes its work. Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. Jesus died all of death for us. Not part of death. All of it. He went even into the grave. To deliver our bodies from the grave. And that's a comfort to us. Jesus didn't skip any part of death. He tasted it all. And has delivered us from it all. And thus Jesus' burial and his subsequent resurrection gives us the most powerful proof that Jesus indeed died all of death and therefore he really conquered all of death and therefore we are truly delivered from all of death. And our graves now are neither a passageway to hell nor a prison that will remain ever closed. But our graves are but, a small, are but a sleeping chamber where the body waits for its resurrection. Thus, just as we exclaim, O death, where is thy sting? In Christ we also exclaim, O grave, where is thy victory? Briefly now, the last stage of Jesus' state of humiliation, his descent into hell. He died, he was buried, he descended into hell. Now because of the arrangement in the Apostles' Creed, it's easy to think that this last stage of Jesus' state of humiliation took place last according to time. But that's not the case. Jesus' descent into hell did not take place after he died, but took place while Jesus was on the cross. This stage of his state of humiliation is put last because it describes his most intense sufferings. And that's important to see. Jesus did not go down to the place hell after he died on the cross. His soul was not in hell until the day of his resurrection. Think about it. He said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. Jesus could not have said those words if he still had days of suffering ahead of him in hell. Jesus said to the penitent malefactor, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not resurrection Sunday when I get there, but today, today. And thus the catechism says at the end of answer 44 that Jesus was plunged into these inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies during all of his sufferings, but especially on the cross. That's what we want to understand concerning this last part of the article. Jesus descended into hell 
while he was on the cross. That is, hell was brought to Christ. And that makes sense when we recognize what hell is. Hell is separation from the fellowship of God and suffering the wrath of God against sin. And that's what Jesus endured upon the cross when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the depths of hell. That was the inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, hellish agonies that he suffered for us. And for our comfort, notice that's where our Lord's Day ends. With comfort. Why is it there added, he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be comforted and I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, has delivered me. Do you have doubts and temptations? Do your sins rise up against you sometimes so much so that you say, how can I be saved? Look to the cross of Christ, believing people of God. There, hell was brought to Christ, and he descended into it, and he suffered all of it, and he delivered you from it. The fullness of the lake of fire was upon him. The outer darkness wherein is weeping and gnashing of teeth shrouded him on that cross. And his light banishes that darkness from you. His shed blood extinguishes those fires that they will never burn against you. When you're afraid, when you wrestle against those accusations of the conscience, think upon the cross of Christ. Jesus paid it all to the very last farthing. With his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. Inexpressible. You can't put it to words. And what a beautiful word that is now, inexpressible, because, beloved, what he went through will forever be inexpressible to you because you will never experience it. You will never have the words to describe what hell is. Because you'll never go there, believing people of God. It is finished. Christ died, and sin is finished, death is finished, hell is finished. And now for you, there is inexpressible joy and blessedness. Be assured. Holy comfort yourself in this. Your Lord Jesus Christ died, was buried, descended into hell for you. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, it is indeed hard to find words adequately to express our gratitude and our adoration for what Thou hast done for us in Jesus Christ. For His death, His burial, 
his descent into hell and what this means for us. Grant that this word of the gospel may so penetrate our hearts that it may be true for us that we are assured and are wholly comforted that we are delivered from our sins. Death has no more sting. The grave no more victory. But there awaits for us life everlasting with thee. Grant it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.